Uh, this summer, we have been uh, learning what love is and what love is not. Uh, love is patient. It is kind. Love does not envy. It doesn't boast. It's not arrogant. It's not rude. And today, we're going to talk about one other description, definition of love, and that's this, that it doesn't insist on its own way. And uh, I, too, was just so encouraged that on that final night, opened up to 1 Corinthians 13, and I thought, wow, this is great. Had a few of the students kind of look the direction and say, hey, uh, my Bible kind of just flops open there, because we've been here a lot. But, but I want to I give us a warning as we begin that learning about love is different than living love. You can be here for all the services. You can, you can have a clear understanding of all these definitions of love. I, I get love doesn't envy, it doesn't boast. I understand those. You can, you can put this chapter to memory, and yet you can still want to kill Frank at work. That, that's, that's the difference between learning about it and, and living it out in our day-to-day lives. A couple weeks ago, this truth uh, really presented itself to me, reminded me uh, of of, of the evidence in my own life that, that learning is different than living. I just woke up one morning, don't know why I was in a bad mood. I was in a bad mood. I was angry about things. I started snapping at my wife, and, and she at one point said, you're being really rude. And I'm like, I know I'm being rude. I don't know why I'm being rude. Uh, it was just this, this back and forth. And finally, eventually, I uh, prayed, confessed, went through some of that process, and by God's grace was able to work through some of those things. Learning is different than living. We have to humbly pray daily that God would give us the grace to live according to this 1 Corinthians 13 kind of love. I mean, you have to wake up every day and say, God, I know I'm going to tend to be envious today. I know I'm going to tend to be prideful and boasting today. I know there's a tendency in me to be rude, to not be patient, to not be kind. Help me. And then when you, when you sense those, those things in your life that aren't loving, when they're revealed to you. you, you immediately, as quick as you can, repent of them, turn away from them, say, I don't, I don't want to do that. And the third thing we've got to do is we have to, to immerse ourselves in the scriptures to remind ourselves what love is, what love is not. Looking at the life of Christ, even in the Gospels, is a great way for us to gain a clear understanding of what love is and is not. And so today we learn this, that love does not insist on its own way, or as some have translated it, love is not self-seeking. Love is not self-serving. Love does not seek its own interest. It doesn't seek its own advantage. It doesn't, I like this one, demand its own way. Love is not selfish. And before we take just a few minutes here and look through and think through love not insisting on its own way, let's, let's pray. Father, thank you. Uh, what a blessing uh, to be here to sing those songs, be reminded, Lord, how much we need you. Life is pointless and purposeless, perp, uh, without purpose, without Christ. He paid it all. And it, it's a blessing to hear our students just share with us some of their experiences from the week, from the funny to the, to the impactful and life-changing truths they heard. Thank you for a great week. Thank you for great leadership in our student ministries. God, continue to bless in that area. And we pray now that you would, you'd help us, God, to, to understand that love doesn't insist on its own way, but also to, 
to commit, submit, to live it out in our day-to-day life. Help us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So 1 Corinthians 13 is in the book of 1 Corinthians, and sometimes we, we forget exactly what that means, but what that means is that the Apostle Paul wrote a letter to this church in Corinth because there were specific things that he wanted to address with them. And so he writes to this church this chapter on love, and so I want to start with the question, uh, were the Corinthians self-seeking? Were the Corinthians uh, self-serving? Did they insist on their own way? Were they selfish? John MacArthur summarizes this well. Here's what he writes. He says, the Corinthian believers were models of what loving Christians should not be. (laughs) What they should not be. They were selfish to the extreme. Uh, When they would come together for their feast, kind of what we would consider like a potluck dinner, they wouldn't share their food with other people. This is an actual issue that's addressed in here. The wealthy wouldn't share their food with the poor. When it came to contentious arguments that would happen from church member to church member, they would take that Christian to a pagan court system, suing them to try to bring resolve. They wanted what they thought were the best spiritual gifts, this is the the immediate context of this chapter, for themselves. Not, Not so they could be gifted to serve other people and to benefit the rest of the body, it was about them. And if I have this gift, then I'll be better than everybody else. That's their mentality. In fact, this is what Paul was even addressing in chapter 10 as he brought the whole eating meat offered to idols argument to a close, and I'll briefly summarize that for you, that in uh, 8, 9, and 10, Paul addresses this issue that was going on in Corinth, that some of the Christians would go into the, uh, the marketplace, and they would buy meat that had previously been sacrificed to an idol. And Paul didn't necessarily have a problem with that. He would say it's just meat because that idol is nothing. But some in the church Uh, used to be pagans, and they used to go and make those sacrifices. And so when they saw their, their brothers and sisters in Christ, people of their own church, eating the meat that was used in those, those pagan uh, temples, they were offended by that. They thought, why would you do that? That's, that's evil. That's, that's what my life used to be. And so Paul simply makes the point to them, if, if meat, eating meat that's offered to idols offends your brother or sister, in Christ, somebody in your church, then don't eat it. It's that easy. Don't insist on your own way. Look back with me, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Uh, I want to start reading in verse 23. Again, just to, to catch us up. For those of you who are here visiting with us, uh, we didn't just happen upon 1 Corinthians 13, uh, 16, 17 months ago. We started in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1. And uh, we happen to be this summer in chapter 13. We've worked verse by verse through uh, so 1 Corinthians 10, 23 will be a reminder for some of us where Paul says this, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. In other words, you have the right to do certain things, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's the right thing to do. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Don't, again, insist on your own way. So then he says, eat whatever's sold in the meat market without raising any question. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And if anyone, uh, an unbeliever, invites you to dinner and you're disposed to go, eat whatever's set before you without raising a question on the ground of conscience. But, 
But if someone says to you, this has been offered in a sacrifice, then don't eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of their conscience. I don't mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience, they would ask. If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? And Paul's response is, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews, Gentiles, or Greeks, and the church of God. Notice this, verse 33. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Here's what he says. Christ isn't self-seeking. I'm not going to be self-seeking. You shouldn't be self-seeking. Don't insist on your own way. So it's no wonder that, that we find this beautiful description of love, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, in a letter uh, to a church that was, uh, that was filled with massively self-centered followers of Jesus. So what about us? What about you? Do we have a problem with seeking our own interests? Uh, do we have a love problem? Of course we do. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, if, you, if you've come here before and you've been a part of our services, uh, you know that we're honest about that, that, that we have problems with pride and selfishness. We're not going to put on an air that says, I'm, I'm better than you or I'm a, I'm a good person. We recognize at our core we are selfish and we are prideful people. And that's our greatest struggle. It always has been since sin entered into the picture. Uh, one commentator, Linsky, uh, I liked what he wrote. He said, if you cure selfishness, you have just replanted the Garden of Eden. If you could get this fixed, we could start all over again. See, selfishness was the downfall of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. They didn't want God's way. They wanted their way. They insisted that I'm going to eat of the fruit of that tree. I want to be like God. Selfishness is what the children of Israel struggled with. If you ever read Exodus and Numbers as they wander through the wilderness, they're constantly insisting on their own way, demanding of God. Selfishness ruined Samson. Selfishness ruined David. In, in a night, really, right? Selfishness ruined Jonah, Judas Iscariot. The idea of insisting on their own way and selfishness will ruin us. You want your own way, right? That's our tendency. And, and here in America, we're, we're honestly just taught to, to demand our own way. I mean, it's your right. You can have it how you want it. It's your freedom. But do we ever stop and consider what it costs others when we demand our own way, when we pursue our own interests? Remember what it said there in chapter 10? Don't pursue your interests but the good of your neighbor. It's not about your good. It's about the good of your neighbor. 
I've said this before and I'll continue to say it, that Jesus' teachings supersede the Bill of Rights. Here in America, we love the Bill of Rights. We love the freedom we have. We can say, I have have the right to say whatever I want to say. And Jesus says, "Uh, no, you don't. Because I want you to speak truth, and I want you to speak truth in love. You can't just say whatever you want to say. You can't just do whatever you want to do. Because we serve a king of kings and a lord of lords that is far greater than a president, a supreme court, a constitution. He gets to call the shots in our life. Marriages end every day because spouses insist on their own way. Neglecting to consider their covenant partner. Spouses will say over and over, I love you, I love you, I love you, but not enough to pick my dirty clothes up off the floor and put them in the hamper. And that's not love. Love acts, love does. Love doesn't insist on its own way. In your marriage, how are you insisting on your own way? How are you failing to love your spouse? That's a question I want you to consider this week and, and, and think through and have a conversation about with your spouse. This could, this could be tons of different things. It could be like, well, I don't like it when they take this route to get to the school, or I don't like it when they, when they, when they uh, pick up this kind of food or make this meal. We insist on our own way. In relationships that we have, and I think of our teens, and this is a point that came to my mind when I first began to look at 1 Corinthians 13. I think it fits well here. In the name of love, guys and girls, boyfriends, girlfriends will try to pressure you into things, sexual things. They'll say, but I love you. And you love me. That's not love. Love is never going to say, I want you to disobey the teaching of Christ. Love is never going to say, I want you to compromise your holiness and your purity. That's not love for you. That's love for them. That's self-interest that they're seeking. We have to call it what it is. Oftentimes, we seek our own interest when we're driving. It's always a good, good one to hit, Right? We think we're, we think we're safe in our bubble in our car, but, but uh, nobody else sees my self-interest. That jerk just cut me off. This guy's just trying to get in front of everybody. I saw a video on, on YouTube. Some of you may have seen I think it was pretty recent. It, and I think it was in California. This car's going down the interstate, probably 50, 70 miles an hour, and there's a motorcycle that pulls up next to a car in this outer lane and goes to kick the back quarter panel of that car while he's, while he's cruising down the highway. Evidently, I would assume that maybe the car cut him off. Well, that car sees him coming and tries to swerve and hit the motorcycle. I mean, what would ultimately probably kill this guy. And then he misses and he swerves and there's another car that wasn't even involved, an SUV, and he has to swerve to move out of the way and it just starts rolling down the highway. I don't know if anybody died, but what's at the core of that? Self-interest. I wanted this lane for myself. I had an agenda, you ruined it. And guess what? It even happens in churches. Did you know that we bring our self-interest into church? 
Absolutely. The disciples uh, dealt with this uh, even in the presence of Jesus. Multiple times, they have the conversation of who is the greatest. With Jesus in the room, I'm I'm probably going to be the greatest. And and the one that just takes the cake for me is the time when uh, James and John show up, other disciples are there, and they bring their mom in, right? So their mom comes in, and they say, Jesus, uh, our mom has something uh, that she wants to ask you. And, And so he says, what is it? And she says, would it be okay if when you come into the kingdom, that my sons, James and John, could sit on your right hand and your left hand and be in positions of authority. And, of course, the other disciples are livid. They brought their mom in here. That's like every you know, kid's nightmare, like when you're on a sports team and you get to play and your mom makes a phone call to the coach. You're like, hang up the phone. You, know, you don't want this to happen. They, they actively wanted this to happen. The other disciples are like, man, this, what are you doing? That's cheap. And Jesus is upset by it because here's his response. Here's what he says in response. He makes some comments to the mom, but I'm going to pick up right after that. And he says, Jesus called them and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles are the unbelieving world. They lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. And it shall not be so among you. Following Jesus is countercultural. So what does he say? It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Hmm. Whoever would be first among you, a slave. And even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. The disciples struggled with it. The Corinthian church, we already talked about it. They struggled with it. Our own church here, Meadowview Baptist, has a sordid history of people seeking their own interest. It could be power play. They wanted power. They wanted to be in a position of authority. Uh, maybe it was a certain preference about a ministry. I wanted this ministry, but you guys chose this ministry. They insist on their own way. I was talking to one of my uh, pastor friends at camp this week, and he recently took a church that was struggling. And uh, he hasn't come in and made a ton of big changes into the church. That's typically considered a bad move. But, but he's, he's done some rearranging in the church, and like there was a room that was full of junk, and he, he kind of cleaned it out and got rid of some of the stuff that they hadn't used in 10 years. And ever since he did that, there's a lady in the church who hasn't even looked him in the eye. She's upset. He's tried to engage her, he's tried to have conversations with her, but she wanted, evidently, maybe that's not the full story, but she wanted this stuff. She's insisting on her way, and she's upset by it. It happens. I'm deeply saddened that as I look at the history, what I would call maybe our sordid history here at Meadowview, that I've contributed to that because there have been times where I've insisted on my own way, in a sinful way. I had good friends several, several years ago, uh, Ty and Amanda Davison, some of you know them. They sat me down and said, you know, you have a tendency to, to have an idea and then you talk to people and you, you try to generate some conversation, but then you just do whatever you want to do anyway. <laughs> and my wife was in the room. She's like, amen. Because uh, <laughs> she's been dealing with that for years. 
an absolute blind spot on my part that, that I tried to begin to correct. This idea, this insisting on my own way that wasn't showing love to other people. Everybody in this room has a preference on music. There's certain songs you like, certain songs you don't like. There's certain instruments you like, certain instruments you don't like. You have a preference on where you sit. You have a preference on who you talk to, who you don't talk to. Uh, the color of uh, bathrooms and carpet, you have a preference on those things. You have a preference, thrivers, on what games you play when it's a thrive night. I want to play volleyball. No, I want to play kickball. We all have these preferences, and having your own preference, it's not a bad thing. It's okay to have a preference, but insisting on your own way, that's not love. And that's not what I'm saying. That's what Scripture is saying. It's what God is saying. And I just want to, I want to pause, and I really do want to commend this church body. Because even though you have preferences, this is not a group of people that insist on their own way. And I've been a part of other churches, and many of you have been a part of other churches. And sadly, that's a rarity. We don't have that, that fighting and the bickering and people demanding You may have some battles in your heart, and I, continue, I encourage you to continue to battle those things, but as, a, as it goes outwardly, we are very blessed. The, the grace of God has been shown to this church for this season. It's not, not to say that we're not going to face some of those things, and, and that's exactly why we're looking at this. Because when we start facing those things, I'm going to be like, um, <clears throat> let's, go, let's go back to 1 Corinthians 13. I'm going to send you an MP3 of a few sermons that you can listen to. Because you need to be reminded of these things. And so we're equipping ourselves. See, the agape, this self-giving love that God's calling us to is, I like this definition. I put this in your bulletin. It's the dynamic creative endeavor of finding ways to pursue the welfare of others. Isn't that great? To pursue the welfare of others rather than your own interest. So, Whose interest are you typically pursuing? And if we're going to be honest, you're going to say, mine. I mean, you wake up every day with the goal of pursuing your own interest. You have your plan, you have your agenda. And when, when somebody throws a, a kink in that, like you thought you were going to get eggs for breakfast, but it's pancakes instead, you get upset. Unless you really like pancakes and you don't like eggs. Because it's our interests that we typically pursue. Do you tend to view yourself as, as always right? Are you always demanding control so that you can direct the outcome? You can manipulate the people to get to where you need to go. See, there's no greater example of this agape love, this, this love that looks to the interest of others than Jesus. You're not going to find it anywhere. Greater love has no man than this, that a man would lay down his life for his friends. And there's some great passages of Scripture, some that we've already quoted. There's many others that are in your bulletin. But I'm going to ask you to turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. Because I think this is the, the most emphatic passage to describe self-giving 
Christ. The Philippians chapter 2, if you can find Galatians and Ephesians, if you're already in 1 Corinthians, Galatians comes after Corinthians, then there's Ephesians and then Philippians. Philippians 2, and we're going to start in verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ and any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy and be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. So he's saying be, be unified in this mind. And, and that's where I would go back to what I just said, committing our church. We're of one mind. We're here to know Christ. We're here to make him known. And that's our focus. The gospel of Christ is our focus, not the side items. Notice what he says in verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. It's about my neighbor's good, not mine. Notice verse 4, let each of you look not to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. This is the mind that Christ had, but it's the mind he enables you to have too. And then verse 6. Christ was in the form of God, and he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself and took upon him the form of a servant. And being born in the likeness of men, he found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. Why did he do that? Why did Christ leave heaven, become human, serve die, and, and not just die, but die the most humiliating death he could die. Why did he do that? Because he was looking out for your interests and not his own. Because he loves you. That's why he did it. Because he's not selfish and self-seeking. That's why he's our example in it. God incarnate was love incarnate. God came in flesh, and he was love in the flesh. He never sought his own welfare, but the welfare of others. And listen, that same incarnate God indwells his people and enables you to love with the same kind of love, enables you to live a life that doesn't insist on its own way, but looks to the welfare of other people. And when we do that, that is absolutely supernatural. And it's incredibly beautiful, and it brings glory to God. He, he desires to work that same kind of love out in your marriage. How different would your marriage look if you had that, that interest in the other more than self. He, he desires to do it in your friendships with others. He desires to do it in our community, in our church. He desires that we display and show this kind of love. Are you open to that? I mean, are you willing to say, okay, whatever it takes, whatever it takes, 
I'll love that way. I'll submit to the Spirit. I'll follow the, the, the road of love. Look, look with me at, you're right there in Philippians 2. Look at verse 12. Here's what he says. You want this kind of love, you've got to work at it. And he says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in presence, uh, but much more in my absence, notice this, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. In other words, it says, get to work, because there's things you need to do, but you don't do it alone. Notice the next verse, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. I'm not preaching self-help today. I'm preaching gospel. The Spirit of God is already at work in his people. For those who have called out, for those who have put their faith and trust in Jesus, there's new life. And the Spirit of God's already at work saying, I want you to love this way. Compelling us to love this way. To love like Jesus loves to not envy, to not boast, to be patient, to be kind, to not seek your own interest. That's the compelling of the Spirit. Is, but we have to join in that. And we have to put into practice these things. Love is you before me. Love prefers you and your interests over me and my interests. And that means this, you die to yourself. Your interests, I'll put them in the back seat. I mean, my interests, not your interests. That could be confusing with the personal pronouns there. I have to put my interests in the back seat so that I can pursue your interests. One other thing about this, love is you before me. But one thing that I thought of as I thought through this and this idea of pursuing the interests of others, it's this, we have to learn to listen. Love listens. Love learns other people. And, and again, we are in a culture right now in our country where it seems like that's impossible to just listen to somebody who has an opposing opinion because we, we I'm right. And you may be right, but there is a wrong way to be right. There's an unloving way to be right. And so we need to learn to, to listen to our spouses, to listen to our friends, to listen to those who have opposing viewpoints, whether it's uh, socially, spiritually, politically. We have to listen and learn. That's what Jesus did. That's why he sat around the table with sinners and publicans. We listen. Would you bow with me this morning? I want to give you just a moment. We've had a long service here, a lot of things we've talked about, but are you insisting on your own way? As you look and evaluate your life right now, maybe it is in your marriage, maybe there's certain friendships, relationships, and, and you, are, you are ruining them, you're burning them to the ground because you want what you want. That is not the Spirit of Christ. That is not love. Repent of it. Repent of it. If you're here and, 
And, and you, you're hearing this, you say, this seems impossible. It is possible through Christ. There is a Savior who makes it possible. And I encourage you, cry out to him. He gives us hope. I'll give you a moment to pray, and then I'll pray for us corporately.